Thank you. Good morning, everybody. It is a pleasure to be your messenger this morning. I pray that God can use me so that I can speak to you in his name. The message that I'm going to share with you this morning as for title, a seemingly controversial parable. The text that we are going to read to support the message is found in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. If you see it on the screen, I invite you please to stand up and we are going to read together for the glory of God. Ready? Let's go. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was clothed, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous would answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invited you in, or needing clothes and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? Then truly I'll tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you were cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needed clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. 
then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous, amen. Be seated, please. And may God bless this portion of scripture for the blessing of everybody here this morning. Later, I'm going to invite you again to read with me. Please get your Bible handy. I had a look before I started. I found about 76 or 77 Bible in the pews. So get ready. Later, you are going to read with me again. Have you ever heard or seen about two people arguing about something they have perceived as a problem or a source of conflict, and it was not. If you have never seen or heard about something like that, please listen carefully to the story that I'm going, I'm going to share with you. And at the end, I'm pretty sure you will agree with me to say there was no reason for the people in the story to go that far in, the, in their divergence. The story has for title, The Priest and the Principal. Here it is. A counselor received a phone call from a Catholic priest. The reason of the call was because the priest and the principal of the parish school had seen their relationship deteriorated to the point where they could no longer communicate. The conflict counselor was called in. He spoke to both men and said, before we get together, where I'm going to try to find a way to solve your problem, I want you to sit down, please, and write down for me what you think the problems are in your relationship. Both of them listened carefully and attentively, did their homework, and showed up on the appointed day, time, and place for the first meeting. They sat opposite one another, and the conflict counselor asked them to read out their list of problems. The priest started first and said, I feel that the principal resents my presence in the school. I would like to play a larger role in the school, but feel I can't. I would especially like to be more involved in religious education, but I feel pushed out. The principal then read out his list of problems and said, I feel that the priest doesn't want me to get involved in the school. I can't understand why he feels this way, because 
we desperately need him, especially in religious education. The end. Do you get it? I hope so. If so, do you see any good reason for the two men to be engaged in that kind of hostility? Personally, I do not see any good reason at all. If there was a problem between the two men, it was simply a problem of perception, misunderstanding or miscommunication. But the seemingly divergent or conflictual situation they wanted to solve by calling the counselor was simply a fake problem. Now, some of you may ask, what do you feel? What is the point of your story? Why have you decided to use it to introduce your message this morning? My answer to you is very simple. I have decided to use it to introduce my message because the text we have just read a few minutes ago is also seen by too many people as a conflictual text like the situation of the priest and the principal, and it is not. People use descriptive words like conflictual, difficult, divergent, contradicting, divisive, terrifying, confusing, and more to describe the parable, and it is not. To help you understand what I'm talking about, I have decided to summarize for you four of the most popular perceptions or descriptive words people keep using to make the parable at the end of Matthew 25 say what Christ didn't mean. First of all, some people think that the parable is contradicting because they assume that Christ implicitly was talking about deeds or, or good works as condition to enter his kingdom. Those people who see contradiction in the text use verses 34 to 36 to make their case. In those verses, the king says to the sheep that are on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger. You invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. These verses seem contradictory for, the, for this first group of people because they know very well, as you and I know, 
what the Bible says about the condition to enter the kingdom of God. They know that the condition is by grace, through faith, not by deeds, not by works, it is, as it is written in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where it is written, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so no one can be boast. The perception of this group of people comes probably from a wrong interpretation of the thoughts and the words used by Christ when he was giving the parable. Christ has never talked about deeds or good works to enter in his kingdom in the parable. A second group of people see a kind of division in the parable when they try to understand the classification of the people by the judge into two distinctive groups, sheep and goats. Those people cannot understand that the word separation can come out from the mouth of the Christ who has made promotion of the concept unity among his disciples all his life. And now he's talking about dividing people into distinctive groups. That doesn't make sense to the second group of people. A third group of people see some terror in the parable. The terrifying aspect perceived by those people surfaces when they weight the severity of the verdict pronounced by the judge against the goat who are on his left side. Those people see in the applied punishment the action of a God without love, without mercy, without compassion. This group of people, knowing God for who he is and for the kind of work he has accomplished through Jesus Christ on the earth, cannot apprehend the idea that this God one day will send people to hell where they are going to be tormented forever and ever. To give you a better idea of the terrifying aspect some people see in the parable, I have decided to share with you only two of those comments made by people over the internet that I personally think do not make justice to the parable. The first comment I want to share with you is one made by a college student and quoted by someone named Delia N. Oliver in a journal called the Journal of Youth Ministry where she writes, 
forming the most terrifying speech Jesus ever gave is told in Matthew 25:31 to 46. I am terrified that I might have missed so many chances to feed, clothe, and help Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you and I know very well that God's great love for saving us from sin can motivate us to excel in doing good deeds. That is explicitly written in many parts of the Bible. But do you think people are in real danger of damnation if they do not provide assistance to somebody in need? The Bible has never said that. The second comment I have selected to share with you is also a quotation from a writer named Lindsay Lopez Paris, who writes in a text published over the internet where she mentions Matthew 25, 31 to 46, and she says this, this is a difficult scripture for many pacifist theologians. For while it contains a beautiful message of how to welcome Christ in the weak and marginalize, it also points to a terrifying judgment of those who fall short. And we all know that we fall short. The sudden memory of this gospel has occasionally frightened, not gently encouraged, but frightened me into giving spare chance to a homeless person on the street or made me feel pangs of guilt if I did not. I am not always motivated by fear when I give, but when I remember this scripture, I am uneasy at, at the very least. There are, of course, those whom I have ignored and those for whom I may have fallen short of my responsibilities and feelings of dread creep upon me as I consider them while reading Matthew's Gospel. What does this message of sharp division between sheep and the goats, the good and the bad, the saved and the damned, have to do with a theology built on a foundation of God's universal inclusion and unconditional love. And what can it do for a world so in need of healing? As you can see, brothers and sisters, this quotation, as well the first one, are very good examples that show how some people react to the parable of Matthew 25. 
The fourth description word some people use to talk about the parable is the word confusing. The piece of information from the parable those people keep using to make their case is found in verses 40 and 45. And it is related to the expression one of the least of these brothers of mine used by the judge. Lot of people express their frustration about this part of the parable because they say the readers or the hearers of the parable are left in the dark regarding the people that the judge calls one of the least of these brothers of mine. No clear information is given about them. Their condition is clearly described in the parable, as you can see. They were hungry, thirsty, strangers, naked, sick, and imprisoned, but their identity is not revealed at all. This lack of information has prompted some readers of the parable to assume that Christ was referring to one of the three following groups of people that I'm going to explore with you now. I say one of the three groups because it cannot, it cannot be all the three at the same time. Christ had only one specific group of people in mind when he gave the parable. Before I continue, if I ask you, do you think Christ was referring, do you, uh, I'm sorry, if I ask you, who do you think Christ was referring to when he used the expression, one of the least of these brothers of mine, what would you say? My question is not a test to verify if you have the correct answer or not. I ask the question because I know by experience that very often when this question is asked, lot of people will be quick to answer Jesus was referring to the poor or the needy. Is that the correct answer? Some of you may say yes. Others may say no. I do not have any problem with the kind of answer you may have. But if your answer is yes, Brother Phil, I just want to tell you, keep listening. And later, if possible, let me know if you have changed your mind. Now, let us start by the first group of individuals some people think Jesus was referring to when he used the expression one of the least of these brothers of mine. It is a largely spread idea that Jesus Christ had in mind the Jews, his ancestors. People make this assumption 
for at least three reasons. Number one, because Jesus was born Jew. Some people from that nation who see their interest in the use of the expression are very comfortable to claim that Christ was talking about them. A second reason that explains why some people think Christ was talking about the Jews is because of the phrase, all the nations, found in verse 32 of the text. The phrase, all the nations, is generally translated by the Gentiles, which means all the other nations of the world, excluding the Jewish nation. For some people, because the Jewish nation is not part of the Gentiles, for this reason, it will not be judged. Does the Bible say anything like that? I don't think so. And I leave this to you to verify in your Bible. The third justification some people use to say that Christ was referring to the Jews is lack to the great tribulation, which is an eschatological event that will take place in the history of our world according to the plan and schedule of God for the present world. Some people come with the idea that during the Great Tribulation, people from other nations in the world will be there to offer help to the Jewish nation in that difficult time. Because of that, the, the people, the Jewish or the Jewish nation will be rewarded by God and the people will be granted a place in the kingdom of God. Do you think Christ was referring to the Jewish as the one, the least of these brothers of mine? I personally do not think so. I do not want to wake the sleepy cat. But, by the way, do you remember how was the relationship between those prism brothers and the Christ? It was not that cordial and brotherly as you may think. The Gospel of John is still there to testify about that. This is why it is written in John chapter 1, verse 11, he came to that which was his own. His own did not receive him. Matthew 23 also gives us another glimpse of how was the relationship between Christ the Savior and the presumed brothers at the time when he was walking on earth. This is why it is written in Matthew chapter 23, verses 20, 37 to 29, this. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
you will kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I long to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not, you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I'll tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, before I continue, to say something about the second group of people, I want you to understand that the arguments used in favor the first group of people to make them fit the description one of the list of these brothers of mine do not stand. And consequently to that, this first group is automatically eliminated from the list of three. The second group of individuals some people have in mind when they read the expression one of the list of these brothers of mine in Matthew 25 is the poor and needy. This is so true that it has ignited in so many people the passion to create, run, manage a great number of philanthropic organizations across the world to help people in need because they see Jesus in every needy person on the earth. Do you think caring for the poor and needy is going to be the criteria Christ is going to use to let people enter his kingdom based on the unshakable authority of the Bible? The answer is a categorical no. If it is no, we can conclude that this second group of people also needs to be crossed out of the list of three because it does not match the appellation one of the list of these brothers of mine. After eliminating two groups out of three, you can easily understand that the third group that I'm going to comment on now is the one that Christ had in mind when he gave the parable. And some of you may ask, Brother Phil, where are you going to find the necessary arguments to justify your point? My answer to you is simple again. Together, we are going to find the arguments in the Bible. We are going to use what most of the theologians call a common practice of biblical interpretation, which is translated as so. When we do not understand something in a specific passage of the Bible, we need to study the surrounding text, which could be the immediate chapter, 
the previous chapter, the next chapter, or the entire book to find answer we may need them. The common practice I'm talking about is, is also strongly tied to what some theologians call the law of non-contradiction, which means we need to use the Bible to interpret the Bible because the Bible cannot be in contradiction with itself. Having said that, let me ask the question. Is the expression one of the list of these brothers of mine only found in Matthew chapter 25? The answer is absolutely no. If the answer is no, where else in the Gospel of Matthew is the expression found and who did it make reference to? To find the answer, now please everybody, grab a Bible in the pew and open it up with me in Matthew chapter 10 and we are going to read verses 1 to 20 and 40 to 42. Matthew chapter 10, 1 to 20, and 40 to 42. If you are ready, let's go, please. And, let's go. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphys, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot. Out, said, Go nowhere among the Gentiles or enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick and raise the dead. Clean lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belt. No bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff. For the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. 
And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave the house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for the town. Behold, I'm sending you as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpent and innocent as dove. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings to my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it's not for you to speak, but the Spirit of the Father speaking on you. Verse 40 to 42 to finish this section. Whoever receives you, receive me. And whoever receives me, receive him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet reward. And the one who receives a righteous because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is my disciple, truly I say to you, he will. Amen. Now, in verse 42, brothers and sisters, do you see a group of people Christ has called one of these little one. Moving back to verse 9 and 10, what was the condition of those people? It was almost, if not exactly, the same as the people described in Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Based on this evidence, we can draw the conclusion that Christ was talking in particular about his first disciples called also the apostle. We can say by extension, Christ was also talking about the messengers of the good news of all ages, including, including the messengers of the good news today and tomorrow if Christ does not return today. In the past, as well as today, lots of messengers of the gospel have experienced all the tough situations described in verses 42 and 44 to 44 of Matthew 25. After saying that Christ was talking about his first disciples and messengers of the gospel of all ages, maybe many of you are not that convinced yet. Let's continue to look for another proof in the Bible. Where else in the gospel of Matthew 
can we find something that can consolidate the position we take by saying Christ was referring to his disciples in the parable. Now, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 12, only verses 46 to 50. Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50. And again, please, let's read together. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside, asking him to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who is my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciple, he said, Ye are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, is my sister, is my mother. Amen. This passage also shows us that before using the expression brothers of mine in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus has used it before in Matthew chapter 12, though it was not word for word. Is there another biblical reference I can share with you that can again make it clearer for you that Christ was referring to his disciple when he was giving the parable? Yes, there is another one. This one is found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 8 to 10, and I'm going to read for you this time. Matthew chapter 28, verses 8 to 10. And it says, So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear in great joy, and run to tell, the, to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took all on his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Who was talking in this passage? It was Jesus. The word my brothers used here was a reference to who? It was a reference to the disciples or the apostles. It was not a reference to the Jews or the poor people who lived in Galilee at that time. So, as you can see, Bible can explain itself because it cannot be in contradiction with itself. Now we reach the point where I'm going to share with you briefly four practical lessons we draw for you from the parable. The first lesson says this, judgment is coming and it is inevitable. Judgment is coming, 
and it is inevitable. Brothers and sisters, throughout the Bible, we see God practicing judgment for many reasons. We do not have time now to review with you all the past judgments, but as you can see in the text we have read, judgment is coming and it is inevitable. It is coming for at least four major reasons, major reason. Number one, ju judgment is coming because it is part of God's plan for the earth. Number two, judgment is coming because it will, it will help to determine which individual will be worthy to enter the kingdom of God. Number three, judgment is coming to give relief to the believers of all time. And lastly, judgment is coming to bring condemnation to the impenitent sinners. Those are not my words. They are from the Lord, according to what is written in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 to 10, and I read for you. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled as to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believe our testimony to you. As I've already said, those words are not my words. They are from the Lord who cannot lie or cannot deceive us. His word is yes and amen. So let us be ready to be found worthy to enter the kingdom of God on the judgment day. The second lesson I draw for you from the parable is labeled like this. The nations will be judged according to how they responded to the gospel and its messengers. It is unnecessary at this point to remind you what the gospel is and who are the messengers of the gospel. You know that already. However, brothers and sisters, do you know that one of the greatest inequities people, countries, nations can commit to make them possible of God's judgment is to neglect God, 
neglect his word and his messengers. When things like that happen in the life of people or nations, God will never let that kind of sin go unpunished. The Bible is full of examples that can testify about that. And the text of this morning is a good example that confirms that. Also, I have a vivid example for you that can be read in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 15 to 17, where it is written, The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his word, and scoffed as his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord was arrowed against his people, and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and did not spare young men or young women, the elderly or the infirm. God gave them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. You see, God is extremely sensitive to the fact that people treat his disciple messengers or servants with love, compassion, and value. He also takes note when people give them assistance in time of need. This is so important to God that he set the standard of caring for his messengers high enough to be the equivalent of caring for himself. Let us ask the question, how do you see the messengers of God? How do you treat them? How and when do we provide for them? Christ, the King of Kings, has already scheduled a day where he's going to judge the nations according to how they responded to the gospel and his messengers. Will we be found not guilty of neglecting the messengers of the Lord on that day. The third lesson I draw for you from the parable is formulated as follows. Caring for the messengers of the gospel is a voluntary act that carries with it eternal reward as well. Not caring for them guarantees eternal punishment. Brothers and sisters, in Matthew 10, where we read that Jesus sent the disciples on a mission, he gave them clear instruction to go empty-handed. You know why? Because he wanted them to stay focused on the job he wanted them to do. What was the job? Preaching the gospel so that souls in great number can be saved for his glory. But to meet their physical needs, 
during their mission, Christ taught the disciples to rely on the generosity of people of goodwill. The disciples trusted God and as the provider, and their needs were met by the people who sought Jesus and them, and those people have the assurance of the parable that one day they will be rewarded for what they did. The providers for the disciples were not obligated to assist them. This is so true that Christ told his disciples before they left, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your word, shake the dust of your feet and leave. Christ at that time knew that people who cared for his messenger will be blessed and rewarded when his kingdom come. And he knew also that punishment is waiting for those who did not care for them. The Lord Jesus is expecting you and I today to assume our Christian responsibility towards those in need for sure. But more importantly, he wants us to care for the messengers of the gospel. Will we be faithful and obedient to do that? If yes, our reward will be great in his kingdom. Otherwise, God's punishment will not spare us as it is written in the parable. Finally, the last lesson I draw for you from the parable says this. The way to enter the kingdom of God has never changed. It is by grace and by grace only. The simplest way I can explain this lesson is this. The text clearly says that the sheep are saved by grace because they inherit a kingdom that was prepared for them since the creation of the world. Also, when the king in the parable says to the sheep, come, you who are blessed by my father, take inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world, for I was hungry and you give me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison. You came to visit me. He was not promoting salvation by deeds or good works. He was simply praising the evidence of their faith. Faith is like a tree and deed or good works are the fruits of the tree. Nobody can pretend to be saved or to be a Christian and not producing fruits. It is impossible. This is why it is written in the book of James chapter 2 verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You see, faith and deeds go hand in hand. The sheep will be accepted 
as subject of the kingdom of God by faith and by faith only, though the evidence of their faith will be praised on the judgment day. The way people can enter the kingdom of God has never changed. It is by grace and will be always by grace only. In conclusion, brothers and sisters, after listening to what I had to share with you about the last parable given by Christ before his death to save the world, I pray that you remember the four practical lessons I have shared with you. Also, I want you to understand that the parable is not conflictual, not divisive, not confusing or terrifying as a lot of people think. I wish that you leave the house of the Lord today knowing that feelings, emotions, personal opinion, flesh, blood are ineffective when it is question of interpreting the word of God. As Christian, there are better steps we can take to have the right interpretation of difficult passages of scripture we may encounter. Among other steps, we can reread the text, meditate on them, on them, pray, invite the Holy Spirit to reveal the message of the text to us, get help from our spiritual leaders, etc., etc. When we do that, the Holy Spirit will never leave us in darkness or confusion. Instead, he will bring forth the necessary spiritual light we need to understand any message God may want to communicate to us by his word. May God bless you. Have a good day. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have brought your people in your house today to hear and listen to your word that has the power to teach, reprove, correct, and train us in righteousness so that we can be complete men and women of God, well equipped for every good work in this world and for your glory. Thank you for talking to us by this message this morning. Help us to remember it and apply it to our lives so that we do not sin against you. Please listen to our prayer in the precious name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen.